Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. On today's broadcast, 340B has dodged another bullet. A federal judge has told the Department of Health and Human Services that it doesn't have the authority to reduce reimbursement rates for drugs covered by the 340B program. On deck to report our lead story this morning is Rack Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. And speaking of drugs, two more pharmaceutical companies have been swept up in a kickback scheme. Famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by in London to report that developing story. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen debunks the myth surrounding pass-fail rates for providers. Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has all the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. It should come as no news to anyone that the costs in our healthcare system are unsustainable. And it's very easy to place blame. The drug companies that think it's acceptable to charge hundreds of dollars per pill, the generic drug companies who conspire to raise prices on medications that cost them pennies a pill to manufacture, the hospitals with their outrageous charge master prices, the insurance companies that skim off almost 30% of all premium dollars for their stockholders, fancy offices, and multi-million dollar CEO salaries, the doctors who remain out of network and subject patients to surprise out of network bills, even when the patient had no say in choosing that doctor, and on and on. But instead of simply whining, I'm gonna give every one of you the opportunity to actually make a difference. Recently, a study was released from a group in Los Angeles looking at preoperative testing prior to cataract extraction at LA County USC Medical Center a safety net hospital where all physicians are employed and salaried. The study looked at the baseline use of preoperative testing and then instituted an intervention to reduce the use of unnecessary tests. The baseline rate was established in 2015 and found that about 95% of patients had some preoperative testing, which included chest x-rays, EKG, and lab tests. With the intervention, they were able to reduce the percentage of patients who had testing to about 30%. Now, that's pretty darn impressive, but here's the problem. In the year 2000, yes, 19 years ago, a massive study of preoperative testing in 19,500 patients having cataract extraction found that preoperative testing did absolutely nothing. In 2011, it was established that Medicare um, alone spent about $50 million on testing for a surgery where the preoperative evaluation should consist solely of determining if the patient is alive. If they are alive and they have a cataract that meets the coverage determination for extraction, they can undergo extraction. So here's where you can make a difference. Go back to your hospital and surgery center, find out if there are requirements for preoperative testing for cataract extraction, and if so, 
gets them rescinded. Now, I'm sure you're going to hear, but our protocols require it, or the anesthesiologist says it has to be done. But don't take no for an answer. Now, if you open the tab on Dr. Hirsch's materials, you can get the two articles to use in your efforts. Now, switching subjects a little bit, have any of you ever been accused of crying wolf? I have. Remember Transmittal 541, which allowed the MACs to deny certain physician claims if the hospital claim is denied? Well, well, we all warned our doctors, but it's been almost five years and it's almost never been used. So when I started talking about the requirement for a shared decision-making prior to implantation of defibrillator, I was worried I was again crying wolf. So it was with great relief that a hospital recently had a MAC denial for lack of that visit. There goes $30,000 and no way to appeal. Are your doctors doing their shared decision-making? You better check. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey, here is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to all. Last week, I attended the annual spring legislative meeting of the National Association of Rehab Providers and Agencies in Washington, D.C. I had the opportunity as part of the program to participate in a presentation by Laura Ellis, Senior Counsel in the Office of Counsel to the Inspector General at the OIG. The topic was, how does the OIG use data? And of course, the subtopic revolved around using data with respect to rehab and therapy. We hope Laura would give us some interesting tidbits, and boy, were we ever surprised. I've been to a lot of OIG presentations, and I've never seen anything this detailed in assisting providers. Laura Ellis accepted the invitation to speak with the understanding that she would have panel support, and she invited myself and Laura Riddell, Chief Compliance Officer for Mountain Land Rehab and longtime Monitor Monday listener, to assist in the panel discussion following her formal remarks. Laura described various different databases that are used by the OIG and how data is compiled and analyzed. She used specific examples with respect to the SNF industry, skilled nursing, in particular the use of the ultra-high rugs, which is of concern across the industry. Her presentation was practically spellbinding for the attendees as she showed graph after graph of data trends, as well as showing how the OIG can drill down from the big picture to the smaller picture with data. All in all, the message that Laura Ellis delivered on behalf of the OIG is that providers need to review their data and that any data available in an organization should also be data that the compliance officer has access to. Laura Riddell and myself provided insight into data that compliance officers and therapy should be reviewing, which as fans of Frank Cohen know, profiling, profiling your own data is critical and it's essential to risk assessment. During the meeting, I also had the chance to network with therapy providers on targeted probe and educate, two rehab agency providers, which are both Part A providers, both in Mississippi under the Novatas JH MAC, both received a round one notification for specific therapy reviews on TPE, those codes being therapeutic exercise and therapeutic activity. So TPE continues. Now for today's poll, I chose something a bit lighthearted as we do a few times in the year. With Memorial Day coming up, it seems like the right time for a lighthearted poll for all of our friends at Monitor Monday. 
What are you going to be doing this Memorial Day? Check A for a traditional barbecue. B for working in the garden. Check C for time at the beach. Check D if you're starting your summer reading list. Check E if you're still deciding. And of course, check F if you are going to do a bit of all of the above and more. Chuck will be back later in the program with the results of our lighthearted poll. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy is also the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Frank Cohen, Mary Inman, David Glazer, and Tim Powell. This is Monday. It's May 20th. And you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Plan to join 600 of your peers from around the country at the 2019 Clinical Coding Meeting, September 14th and 15th in Chicago. Attend sessions and conversations covering CDI, Revenue Cycle, Professional Services, Facility Services, 2020 Coding Updates, Compliance, Auditing, and Innovation. If you're looking for cutting-edge coding education, peer-to-peer collaboration, and engaging discussions, look no further than right here. Attendees earn CEUs and CNEs, and all advanced full registrations receive a free AHIMA Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 codebook. Visit ahima.org slash clinical coding for more information. Thanks, Clark. By the way, there's a very important webcast that's coming your way next Thursday. It's all about stopping revenue leaks at your facility. This webcast is being led by a friend of this broadcast, Dr. Lisa Banker. And you can save 40 bucks when you use the coupon code MONDAY. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment. Here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, I say this every time. So what could possibly be risky this morning? Well, good morning, Chuck. Last week, I mentioned new Department of Justice guidance involving the False Claims Act cases. And you can see that under the David Glazer Handouts tab. So that's a great prompt to discuss interactions with the government generally. Whether it's someone from the Department of Justice, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or a local police officer, if someone shows up asking you for information, you need to consider three questions. The first is whether you are required to give the information to the government. The Office of Inspector General is entitled to immediate access to Medicare records. That doesn't mean an OIG agent can walk in and walk out with a record under his or her arm. The statute defines immediate access as within 24 hours, but the OIG is going to get that Medicare record. The second question is whether you are allowed to give information to the government. If a patient confides in you about their past chemical dependency treatment, federal law may prevent you from disclosing that information. It's important to remember that HIPAA allows state laws to be more restrictive. So if a national speaker tells you that HIPAA allows you to reveal some information, state law may still prohibit it. A case in Chicago this weekend where a hospital is getting flack for not disclosing the presence of a patient is a good reminder that as a matter of policy, we want people to be able to seek medical care. So there are times where the law prevents you from disclosing something about a patient. Finally, should you give the information to the government? More on that momentarily. So if we're going to take the three questions to a shorthand, it's must you, can you, and should you? So let's talk about the should. Litigation has two elements to it, procedure and substance. Some lawyers like to focus on the procedure. Proceduralists believe that it's wise to make it as difficult as possible for the other side to get anything. 
Those lawyers are going to fight every piece of information that's sought by the other side and make it as time-consuming and as expensive for the information to be shared as they possibly can. It can be a very effective strategy, though in my mind, it's a jerky one. Personally, I'm more a fan of focusing on the substance. My belief is that if you generally are trying to do the right thing, you can tell a compelling story that will allow you to win. I think that transparency increases the odds of winning because nearly everyone in the judicial process is biased toward the party that acted with good intent. Fighting about process can suggest that you have something substantive to hide. I'm not suggesting you roll over. Quite the contrary. On the substance, I recommend you confidently and persistently advance your arguments. So how does this relate to the new False Claims Act guidance? The guidance suggests that this strategy may actually get you a more favorable result in any False Claims Act investigation. Ultimately, considerable discretion rests with the Department of Justice. And if you cooperate on the process and are polite but firm on the substance, it's possible that you may achieve the best result possible. Make sure you know what approach your lawyers will use. If you want to fight tooth and nail on the process, for example, you don't want to hire someone like me, or me for that matter. If your goal is to appear reasonable, you don't want a lawyer who pounds the table. You can disagree without being disagreeable, and the new guidance gives you a reason to consider that. Chuck, I love hollow notes, and while this isn't my favorite hollow notes song, it works well for describing the interactions with the government when they give you an imperfect offer. I can go for being twice as nice. I can go for repeating the same old line. But I can't go for that. I can't go for that. No, no can do. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Two pharmaceutical companies have agreed to pay $125 million to resolve allegations they paid kickbacks through Co-Pay Assistance Foundations. Calling in live from London at this hour is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman with an update on a story that we reported last month. And good morning, Mary. So, Mary, what's the latest on this developing story? Good morning, Chuck. I'm happy to report on the latest. As regular Monitor Monday listeners will recall, on April 15th, we reported that three pharmaceutical companies... Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Lundbeck LLC, and Alexian Pharmaceuticals had paid $122.6 million to settle allegations they violated the False Claims Act by paying kickbacks to Medicare patients in the form of copay waivers. Today, we report on two more pharmaceutical companies, Astellas Pharma U.S. and Amgen, who have agreed to pay an additional one. $124.7 million to settle related charges, bringing the total settlement amount in this case to almost $250 million. When they are prescribed medications, Medicare beneficiaries are required to pay a fee generally in the form of a copayment of a deductible, which is legally mandated. Drug makers who reimburse patients for these costs can run afoul of the anti-kickback statute. 
The allegations against all five pharmaceutical companies in this case involve a similar scheme in which the companies disguise kickbacks to patients as charitable donations from purportedly independent foundations. In fact, the government alleges that the foundations here were substantially controlled by the drug companies and were set up with the goal to increase the sale of certain high-cost drugs the companies manufacture. Broadly speaking, the anti-kickback statute prohibits healthcare providers, including pharmaceutical companies, from paying or receiving kickbacks, remuneration, or anything of value to induce patients to purchase or use a company's drugs. The law, which seeks to prevent physicians from prescribing medically unnecessary medications, is also intended to ensure that a physician's medical judgment is not compromised by financial incentives and is solely based on the best interests of the patient. Research has shown that pharmaceutical patient assistant programs may lead to higher drug prices, including by steering patients away from generic drugs and other less costly alternatives, and federal regulations impose limits on such programs. Drug makers are not allowed to directly cover prescription copayments for Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries, although they can donate to bona fide independent charities. This most recent settlement addressed Amgen's marketing of Sensipar, a drug used to treat thyroid disorders, and Cryprolis, a drug used to treat melanoma. Amgen allegedly donated millions to a foundation that funded co-payments for these drugs and approached a foundation about starting a new Cyprolis fund. For a period of three years, the foundation only helped patients taking Amgen drugs and not any competitor's drugs. Astellas allegedly developed a similar scheme around its prostate cancer drug, Extandi. The government alleged that Astellas arranged for two foundations to operate funds that covered patients' co-pays for Extandi's class of drugs, but not for other similar drugs, and that Extandi patients received nearly all of the assistance from these two funds. Andrew Lelling, the United States Attorney for the District of Massachusetts, which led the prosecution of these five pharmaceutical companies, had the following to say about the most recent settlement. According to the allegations in today's settlements, Astellas and Amgens conspired with two copay foundations to create funds that functioned almost exclusively to benefit patients taking Astellas and Amgen drugs. As a result, the company's payments to the foundations were not donations, but rather were kickbacks that undermined the structure of the Medicare program and illegally subsidized the high cost of the company's drugs at the expense of American taxpayers. We will keep pursuing these cases until pharmaceutical companies stop engaging in this kind of behavior. Given this warning from U.S. Attorney Andrew Lelling, we can expect to see more of these cases coming out of the District of Massachusetts in the future. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. Calling in live from London was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen joins us now to debunk a myth about pass-fail rates for providers. Good morning, Frank. So, Frank, what's this myth all about anyway? Well, you know, Chuck, most of the organizations with whom I've engaged over the last, what, 100 years, it feels like, um, feel this obsessive need to use the results of these internal 
individual provider reviews to infer either an overall pass-fail rate to everything that provider does, or even to use it to infer the organization's pass-fail as a whole. And I, I get the reason for this. Leadership wants some general idea of what their compliance risk and exposure look like. Plus, who doesn't want to know which providers are contributing most to that risk? The problem is most of the time, sampling methods and sample sizes are way out of control, way too small for that type of statistical analysis. One reason is that many organizations are still caught in old, useless, traditional auditing methods. Hey, the 1980s called, Chuck, and they want their probe audits back. Because unless they're focused on a specific code that has already been linked to risk, the probe audit is absolutely a useless uh, tool, as useless as I heard someone say, a screen door on a submarine. Here's an example. If you look at just the Medicare submission database, let's look at internal medicine docs. They build 140 unique procedures or services based on the procedure code, of which 92 of those make up the top 80%. So let's say you're using some legacy model like a probe audit, and let's say that you're required to audit 10 encounters per provider per year. So the maximum number of codes you would be able to review would be 10, right? Or 7% of all the unique codes that provider reported. That's the max. So that means that you just ignored 93% of all the compliance risk events. And by the way, the chance of randomly getting 10 unique codes out of 149 is something like 1.2 times 10 to the 20th power. In fact, you're twice as likely of getting eaten by a shark while you're being struck by lightning than getting 10 unique codes. And at best, you end up with one encounter to audit, and who believes that it's okay to extrapolate from one encounter? Can you say no one? Well, maybe except CMS. So rather, let's say that you pulled 10 encounters for a specific code, 99233. The results of that audit reveal that three of those 10 encounters failed the audit for one reason or another. What's easy is to say that this provider's error rate is 30%. And if you're talking about the number of encounters that failed, you'd be correct. Because we're not inferring the results, at least not yet, but rather describing the results. So where we go wrong is when we infer that 30% of that provider's 99233 codes are coded wrong, right? Or the 30% of everything that provider is done wrong. And why can't we do it? It's based on this idea of sample error, which occurs with every single sample, is defined by standards of statistical practice. So while 3 out of 10 is 30% from a descriptive perspective, uh, 3 out of 10 is actually somewhere between 67 and 65.2% when inferring the results to a larger population. So the one caveat is when you do specific codes that you suspect have an issue because then smaller samples can sometimes be used. Uh, one method I like uh, is to pull some small sample, say 10. If the threshold fails, say 30%, pull another 10. If that fails, then do a statistically valid random sample and use the results of that review for your extrapolation. So Chuck, feel free to tread but tread carefully, and that is the world according to Frank. Thanks, Frank, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Intelligence and Analytics at Doctors Management. You can read all about this very important subject on the Rack Monitor News.
A federal judge has upheld a lower court's ruling that the Department of Health and Human Services exceeded its statutory authority. Now, that's when it reduced the 2018 Medicare reimbursement rates for drugs covered by the federal 340B drug program. Reporting our lead story this morning is Rack Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Chuck. And there's an old Southern saying that if you see a turtle up on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. He doesn't belong there. He doesn't know what to do while he's up there, and you just want to help the poor, stupid guy get down. CMS is our turtle of the day. A federal judge has upheld the lower court's ruling that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services exceeded its statutory authority when it uh, uh, on reimbursement for drugs covered under the 340B drug program. U.S. District Court Judge Rudolph Contreras, citing, sitting in the District of Columbia, issued the ruling uh, last Monday in the matter of the American Hospital Association, Alex versus M. Azar, HHS Secretary, ordering the HHS to back, the draw, back to the drawing board uh, and a warning to act with haste to make a correction. And here is where the turtle analogy comes in. On or before August 5th of 2019, the parties are required to submit a status report regarding the agency's progress on the remand to remedy the issues raised in the litigation concerning the 2018 and 2019 OPPS, Outpatient Perspective Payment System Rules. Contreras concluded in this 22-page decision that the court expects the agency will act expeditiously in resolving those issues. The ruling stopped short of vacating HHS's 2018 and 2019 OPPS rules, giving the havoc it may wreak on Medicare administrations, as Contreras put it, and it did not order the hospitals be compensated for 340B drug payments lost in the last two years. Maureen Testoni, president and chief executive officer of the 340B Health Health and repeat guest on Monitor Mondays, uh, hailed the decision as a clear win for providers nationwide. On behalf of the 1,400 hospitals that we represent that participate in the 340B program, we are pleased that this court has once again found that the HHS exceeded its statutory authority by cutting what Medicare pays for outpatient drugs delivered to its patients, Testoni said in a statement. The cuts made in 2018 and 2019 have reduced hospitals' ability to care for those in need, and the sooner this policy is reversed, the better hospitals will be able to serve the needs of patients with low incomes and those in rural communities. HHS must act quickly, as any further delay will only harm patients and hospitals as they rely on for care. I would just like to close by saying that this is a huge change in overall uh, federal litigation when it comes to the federal government. The discretion has always been given to the, to the CMS administrator, and I am sure today CMS has seen a wave of Medicare appeals go in, as well as the American Hospital Association see a wave of new dues. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Rack Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim is a regulatory expert, and he can be heard Tuesdays on Talk 10 Tuesday. Thanks again, Tim, very much. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Chuck, I asked our listeners this morning, and I'm sure they'll be uh, looking at the podcast or listening to it. What are your plans for the Memorial Day holiday? Is it a traditional barbecue? Perhaps working in the garden? Maybe time at the beach? Starting your summer reading list? Or if you're still deciding? Or maybe a bit of all of the above and more. And Chuck, I wanted to use that poll to say that I'll be doing a little bit of and more, as this is my last regularly scheduled routine broadcast with Monitor Monday as a panelist since we started this program in 2010. I'll be appearing on and off as late-breaking rehab news happens, but I'm starting the path to retirement by the end of the year. 
And I just wanted to let our listeners know that I'll be gone unless there's breaking news, and I hope I'm not forgotten. Chuck? Nancy, thank you very much. And I want to tell you, you will not be forgotten. We want to take this opportunity right now to thank you so very much for your contributions to Monitor Monday over the last 10 years. It was back in January 2010 we first began Monitor Monday, and Nancy's been there ever since. And Nancy, I thank you for being with us all these Mondays, just logging in, knowing that you were there, listening to your comments, not only about physical therapy, but also general healthcare issues as you have reported so well and with such great accuracy. You've been a, an asset to our program. Nancy, we're going to miss you, but we look forward to your coming back when there's breaking news and important stories. And by the way, uh, this is going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday, and I want to thank you very much for being with us. I want to thank our panelists, Frank Cohen, David Glader, Dr. Ron Lehurst, Tim Powell, and Mary Inman, who is calling in live from London. I also want to thank J. Paul Spencer for sitting in for me last Monday. And a program note, next Monday will be Memorial Day. It's a time when we honor the servicemen and women who made the ultimate sacrifice for our nation. So there's not going to be a Monitor Monday next Monday. But we'll be back on June 3rd, and we hope you're going to be with us when Alan Fink-Samnick, Nicole Emanuel, and former CMS official Matthew Albright join us for another live edition of Monitor Monday. In the meantime... You can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device that is absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And until we return on Monday, June 3rd, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.